0: Politics without the soap opera. With unfiltered constitutional conservative truth. The Conservative Review with Daniel Horowitz.
1: And welcome back, fellow American patriots and Minutemen standing at the ready to guard our liberties and to search for new frontiers where we could actually live with liberty. This is your host, Daniel Horowitz, back in the house. Friday, to cap off this week, May 14th. Uh, May 14th is the anniversary of the beginning of the Constitutional Convention, by the way. It started May 14th, 1787. That's what we need. New Frontiers was also the date of the Lewis and Clark Expedition when it began, two-year-long exp- expedition. We need an exploration, probably physically, too, to find new land to live in, but certainly politically. We need to get together, have a meeting of the minds to see where to go. Now, Yesterday, I spoke about the state of play on masking, where things stood, and then right after I finished, CDC comes out with their bombshell. Now, I am recording very early today, and that's why my voice might be a little bit funny sounding, because during allergy season, I'm just really congested in the morning. Uh, We are going to have Dr. Peter McCullough on to answer your questions on vaccines, early treatment. I just want to do a follow-up with him because he's written new stuff on that. And it does tie into this, but I did first want to give you guys some sort of perspective on what CDC is doing and why they're doing it. And therefore, what we need to do. Now, look, it is good news. I'm not going to say there's no shred of good news. I think we are all pretty shocked um that they just reverse course in in a matter of nothing they 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 barely said you could be outside in no crowds without a mask when you're unvaccinated when you 're vaccinated and now suddenly if you're vaccinated you're you're good to go, although they are withholding some things so there's a lot to get to and a lot to unpack uh, but as always, we have here 2020 vision we could see ahead of the curve. We skate to where the puck is headed. That's why I need you guys to sign up, subscribe to see our podcast, as well as your friends. It's also why I need you guys to support our advertisers. And speaking of 2020 vision, guys, Better Spectacles is now offering authentic German-engineered Rodenstock eyewear for the first time in the U.S. Rodenstock is a 144-year-old company, the world's gold standard for eyewear with over 500 patents. Reagan wore Rodenstock glasses, by the way. Their expert opticians specialize in difficult prescriptions, astigmatisms, those with uh, uh, problems with progressives, and technology has caught up to your prescription. Even if it's a high one, like mine, I am very nearsighted, maybe from all the reading I do. One of their specialties is helping those with near and immediate vision um, and they make Go Specs lenses that uses advanced algorithms for more than a million patients, measuring 7,000 points in the eye. So you get a better angle so you don't have neck strain, but also just, you know, you see better. Um, and uh, up to 40% better. So go to betterspectacles.com slash conservative. You could actually schedule a teleoptical appointment where you don't even have to leave your house. Um, they are a real, you know, they have real... People live, but you know this is great now when you don't want to sit and wear a mask. Which, by the way, that is not going away in doctors' offices. But they're offering my audience an introductory sixty-one percent off their GoSpecs lenses, plus free handcrafted rodent stock frames. Just visit BetterSpectacles.com/slash-conservative. BetterSpectacles.com/slash-conservative. Okay, folks. So a couple things here. First off, just perspective. The fact that they said, even outdoors, even with a vaccine, you still have to wear a mask. But then, okay, maybe not in crowds. Okay, maybe not at all. And then, boom, they say, even indoors. Nothing changed. I mean, people have been vaccinated. Vulnerable people have had that opportunity for months. Nothing has changed. So anyone who still believes there is life science, not political science behind this, they're retarded. Okay, They are buck naked in front of the eyes of the American people as completely corrupt and political, and therefore everything they have said and will say on this issue is less scientific than what a first grader would say about it. So that's just right off the bat. Second point is why they did it. Okay? It's not because suddenly they want to bring freedom to America, but hopefully we could at least take advantage of this to a certain extent and press on. The reason they did this is very simple. See, you and I have no power. People with disabilities, rape victims, we're just all of us to have the liberty to breathe everything we spoke about yesterday, the CO2 buildup, the bacterial and fungi buildup on the masks, the denial of oxygen in our bloodstream from, from this crap. No, that doesn't matter. You have no voice. But Big Pharma has a voice, and they basically hit a brick wall, and not enough people were signing up for the poison, so they said, look, you know, guys, you got to do this, so as ideological as they are, they're also bought into the cronyism, which again should show you that the corporatism and the communism in government are thick as these, we have corporate communism, so if Big Pharma calls in a favor, they'll get what they want. Which leads me to point three. At the end of the day, they do want to maintain control. So how do they do that? What they do is, at any given moment, they try to maximize both the cronyism and tyranny. Okay, so they can't say the vaccine is nothing, because then no one wants it. But they can't say it's everything, and it's over, because they want the control. So that's why they've been dragging their feet and just giving away as little bit at a time. They took a bigger step yesterday, because I think... Big Pharma demanded it of them. But again, remember, they're not stupid. They know they created this cult. So they know that the so-called private businesses, Kroger announced yesterday they're going to continue it. Where I live, everyone's still wearing it. I don't know if it's going to kick in over the weekend or whatever. And they say blatantly, you know, this is notwithstanding local regulations. So they're going to keep that going as long as they can, which is why we need to stay in the fight. And then also, if you noticed they still reserved travel and airplanes and medical, and that's a big deal. People need to travel. People need to go to the doctor, and usually they're people under the most stress and having medical issues, and it's the hardest for them to wear the diaper. And the question being is if they're now suddenly vaccines... No, they work. I mean, it was remarkable hearing CDC Director Walensky and Fauci both suddenly say... Vaccines work, period. You should not be wearing it in a grocery store. And they say shouldn't, but they said you don't have to. Right, remarkable. Literally a reversal of what they said without anything changing. They look like fools. But then if that's the case, why do you have to wear it on an airplane? If anything, airplanes have less of a problem, and, and that statistically has been shown because they have good filtration. Because we know filtration is really the, the big factor. Masking is nothing. That's what Stephen Petty and the industrial hygienists we've had on the show have told us. So, again, they have to retain as much control as they can. All this does is give us a cause of action for an even stronger lawsuit against the remaining aspects of it, whether it's local, across the board, or federal for air travel. And like I said yesterday, even buses that don't cross state lines to go to school, the states are saying, look, it's federal. We need litigation on that. That's not ending. That is not ending. And we need legislation everywhere we could pass to codify in county and state law that this is to, the right to breathe is unalienable. It doesn't matter whether you're vaccinated or not, this virus or not, Government can never do this to you ever again. Fauci already warned he will do this with the seasonal flu. Could you imagine once it comes back, the panic that they're going to push? Because we've gone a year without it, so we've forgotten what the flu is. So it's not like we could celebrate. There is more to do. And then finally, the obvious point is, They sound like a bunch of idiots, and this is the point everyone's worried about, point number four, which is, wait a minute, what do you mean if you're vaccinated? Everyone's asking, well, how do you know if this guy's vaccinated? Where is government headed with that? So first off, obviously the implication is stupid, because if you're vaccinated and they're saying it works, it works. It doesn't matter if if the other guy is not vaccinated. That's his problem in your mind that they think that's a problem, so okay. You know? But remember, we agreed to this stupidity that somehow a mask works, but only to protect the other person. So it wouldn't surprise me if they could start with this stupidity of, you know, somehow, if you don't wear a mask, if you don't get vaccinated, it affects the the other guy. So we have to watch out for all that. And then, of course is this going to be a way to start forcing people to vaccinate? So they offer the carrot. Does that mean the stick is not far behind it? You know, I have people messaging me about this, that government really does have the ability to monitor. Everyone's talking about a vaccine passport, but even without that, think about it. If you go to get vaccinated... They have your information. So by default, they could ascertain if you have not been vaccinated. To me, there is no way. First of all, the state definitely has that information. And there's no way the feds aren't going to get it from them if, if they, you know, unless they don't want to cooperate, but they will. So that's something we want to explore, certainly in the coming days, but I do want to get to our guest to delve in a little bit more into vaccines. Now, folks, just to introduce our next guest, one of the most revealing aspects of this entire saga of the past 14 months is the fact that our government is treating an experimental mRNA as if it's like Tums or Advil, as if it's candy, to give to babies, to give to children, people with no risk, Deny, obfuscate, cover up, shame people into getting it. A lot of private entities, contrary to statute, they're mandating it. Delta just announced they're mandating it for new employees. Yet, at the same time, you have things like ivermectin and other repurposed cheap drugs that have been prescribed billions of times. So by definition, it's safe they treat it like it's the most experimental thing around and it can't be used until you have endless studies, although they don't seem to really want to pursue those studies in the intermittent months that we've been in and they don't want to hear about it. And that juxtaposition alone demonstrates the motivation that sadly this is about power, money, and control and not about saving lives. Because if you were really such a COVID hawk, you would have joined our next guest, Dr. Peter McCullough, In really pursuing early therapeutics, we've done everything we can to deal with this virus. I mean, it's affected everything. Heck, it's hard to find a car now because of it. But we've done everything except for actually treating it. Actually treating it. Dr. Peter McCullough is a clinical cardiologist in the Dallas area, but he's also written a lot academically and done a lot of research He's treated a lot of COVID patients, seen what works, and is putting out information that you would expect NIH and CDC and FDA to be putting out, but instead they're silent. We've had him on before, but backed by popular demand is Dr. McCullough himself. Dr. McCullough, thanks so much for joining us today.
0: Daniel, thanks for having me. I'm a professor of medicine at Texas A&M College of Medicine on the Dallas campus, and I've really been focused on COVID-19. I have over 600 publications in the peer-reviewed literature on medical topics, 40 directly on COVID, and, uh, and I treat COVID every day in my practice. So uniquely, I think of all the media doctors and others who have opined, as a single person, I've looked at more data, made more decisions, and treated more patients than anybody uh, in the world at this point in time.
1: And that's a really important point because I've seen a lot of specialists. They could be a cardiologist. They could be an anesthesiologist. In my community, they put out these notices and letters and sometimes videos. And I know they're not treating any, any of them. They have nothing to do with it. Um, but that's the thing. You've really been a frontline both at the clinical level and the academic research level. And I want to get to some of that stuff, but I want to start with the vaccines first. I, I started off with yesterday's CDC bombshell. I, I really want to just get your take of why CDC suddenly um, just did an about face, Fauci did an about face and like, yeah, you know what, vaccines work and you, you, you have your freedom if you're vaccinated.
0: Well, here's the difficulty with the CDC. Um, unlike people in my position in the community, no one at the CDC has actually ever treated COVID. None of them have actually seen a case of COVID and none of them are actually actively publishing on COVID and interpreting the data rapidly. So we have a situation where the Centers for Disease Control is running about six to nine months behind now on the data. They're supposed to be analyzing data and providing recommendations to the public and doctors. So they work for us as public servants. They don't issue mandates. They don't issue judgments or rulings. Uh, They are simply uh, an information source for us to move forward. Now, they've disappointed us greatly. I think the single greatest disappointment is today announced that the CDC will now effectively scrub and not report any vaccine failure data, none whatsoever. So we'll be blind to knowing uh, where the infection is breaking through the vaccine in the community. As more and more people get vaccinated, the conclusion will be obviously COVID must be occurring in the vaccinated people. But um, this is a really, really important intentional move to try to make the vaccine look better than what it really is, and it's gonna blind us to understanding emergent of uh, resistant variants and other problems.
1: So that's what I wanted to get to. Um, last time I had you on, we talked more about the early therapeutics, um, but I I haven't had you on since the news of the temporary suspension of the J&J vaccine came out. A lot of countries are stopping the AstraZeneca uh, vaccine. Um, obviously, your big specialty is the heart, um, and we're seeing some of these Cases of thrombosis, heart problems. What's the reason for that? And is this really a concern or is this, you know, one in a million?
0: It's a giant concern. I just saw a patient yesterday who received one of the messenger RNA vaccines and she had blood clots developed through her entire body and was hospitalized. We had a case at our hospital with a heart valve uh, that developed a blood clot and was thrombosed. Uh, And so the the issue is all when the vaccines cause the body to make the spike protein, which is the pathogenic dangerous protein of the virus, that spike protein causes blood clotting. So all the vaccines cause blood clotting. AstraZeneca and Johnson & Johnson were called out, uh, I think unfairly. There's much higher rates occurring with Pfizer and Moderna and the messenger RNA vaccines. The U.S. National Institutes of Health co-owns the Moderna patent, so they have a direct conflict of interest in trying to promote the messenger RNA vaccines.
1: Wow. So so this is very important. You're saying this is not just something endemic of the endovirus shell that those two other vaccines use. This is a, at least as much of a problem in the mRNA.
0: It's a greater problem because the messenger RNA has caused tremendous spike in the spike protein it's an uncontrolled production of the spike protein once it's injected into the body and the messenger RNA is transcribed there's no control over how much is made some people make very little they have hardly any reaction some make a ton and it's fatal in a day or two so as a general observation all the vaccines put together in the United States every year are reported through this reporting system hundreds of millions of administrations, the annual number of deaths that get reported through this system per year prior to COVID was 200 per year, roughly. We are now four months into this program with COVID alone. The number of deaths are 38, 37 and climbing as of April 30th, 2021, over 10,000 hospitalizations. And so this vaccine by the data will go down as the most deadly vaccine ever unleashed on the U S public.
1: So what I wanted to get to is the next stage where they're now coming out with, and they have come out with, uh, the Pfizer vaccine for children as young as 12. I, I had a group of friends gather last night, and, and these are mainly politically conservative, by the way. And one individual who I know is generally pretty suspicious of government, it shocked me. He comes in and brags about, my 14-year-old got her first shot. And I said to him, I said, like, you know, you know that the virus is is not a threat at all to children that age. And I said, even if you believe the danger from the vaccine is is low in absolute terms, it has got to be higher than the risk of the virus. And it's like he's like, it doesn't hurt. It couldn't hurt. And I was thinking it says in statute that in EUA, one of the things is it has to be marketed to the public it's to be made very clear that it's experimental. But instead, they're doing the opposite. They're making it like this is the highest order of men. What do you, what do you say to people like that? And, and ha- I guess the information is just not getting out.
0: Well, there are no studies demonstrating clinical benefit in children. Uh, and the, there's only an opportunity for harm. Keep in mind, we only uh, vaccinate children per, to protect them. We don't vaccinate children to protect others. So uh, we can't vaccinate a child and uh, in order to protect someone else and ask that child to take a risk, we've done the analyses, the benefits of the vaccine don't begin to outweigh the risks until after age 50. So in my practice, if people ask me, I don't advise anybody under age 50 to get the vaccine. And it's only in the older at risk groups. And I think because of the hazards of the vaccine, it's only those who honestly wouldn't survive COVID. That would be somebody old with multiple medical problems. We would give the vaccine, we would take the risk on it to protect them against a fatal case of COVID. With children, there were more fatal cases of influenza than COVID last year. So no, it's inappropriate to vaccinate children. It's not patriotic. It's not safe. And it's a purely voluntary program. And I think, I think parents ought to look at it uh, pretty carefully. It's, um, it's something at this point in time. It's not justified by the science. It's not justified by good clinical judgment.
1: And, and do you believe that there are any angles, just biologically, why children might have more of a problem with the vaccine? Or is it just the same thing as with adults, and it's just not worth it relative to the risk of COVID?
0: Well, some children will have uncontrolled production of the spike protein and end up with blood clots that develop in the brain or in the abdomen or elsewhere. And then some will have fatal reactions. I mean, the writing's on the wall At 38, 37 deaths in adults, that's going to happen in children. Let's hope it's it's, uh, very few but parents shouldn't be surprised if, if a ch- their child gets a vaccine and ends up with some horrific permanent complication or death. They shouldn't be surprised. I'm looking right at the CDC data. The CDC tells people, look at the VARS data. They have it all over their consent form. They have it all over their website. They are telling you we're offering this as a voluntary offering to the public, but look at the data. So that's what I'm reading to the U.S. public. As of April 30th, 2021, 38, 37 deaths. That number should be far fewer than 50 if it was safe. So parents beware. There will be some children who die if they proceed with vaccination.
1: Yep. No, and, and, and I think even Pfizer's own data show that there is a serious adverse event every 333 doses in their recent trial of 12 to 15-year-olds. Now, you would have to get to, according to Israeli data, you have to get to 28,000 doses among adults to save lives. So now that adults are vaccinated and you're just going for children, the value add of lives saved per child vaccinated, who knows what that could be hundreds of thousands over a million um because it's not just kids aren't in, in danger, it's that adults already have the opportunity to be vaccinated. So they're they it's it's just shocking. Um another aspect that is shocking, you know, the fact that they're just You know, there's no nuance. Everyone get vaccinated. You must do it. No nuance, no um, conditions for age. But another thing I've noticed is there is zero condition for whether you already had natural infection. I I read on this show yesterday a brand new French study um, that showed even mild prior infection over six months ago seems to convey good immunity against newer variants. Um, most of the data sh- seem to show that it's better than, than the vaccine and yet nobody seems to know about that I, I saw even Austin Peterson um, or J- Jordan Peterson yesterday big you know kind of conservative figure that a lot of people in my crowd look up to he was like look even though I got it before my titers are just they're too low the antibodies are too low I don't trust it I'm getting vaccinated what would you say to people like that?
0: It's unwise. The, the immunity is robust, complete and permanent. So once one has the virus, the immunity is permanent. This virus is very similar to SARS-1. SARS-1, it's been 17 years, no one's ever gotten a second case. With COVID-19, no one's ever got a serious second case. It hasn't happened. There's been a, about a hundred confused cases where someone has a positive, false positive PCR at one time and actually gets the real illness another time, but it's impossible to get it twice. So once somebody has COVID, it doesn't matter. Now, if somebody has, didn't get the original test and thought they had it, I would say get antibodies or the T-detect test. The T-detect test looks way better than the antibodies to prove that you've had it. But once a patient has COVID, they can't get it again. They, they were excluded from the vaccine trial, so Pfizer, Moderna... J&J uh, and, the, and the US FDA, they know you can't get it twice. They were excluded from the clinical trials and there's no reason to vaccinate them. There are two studies now out of the UK showing if somebody does get vaccinated and they previously had COVID, they have a much higher rate of serious vaccine reaction risks. So all you're taking on is risk, no benefit. If you've had COVID, you've got a complete immunity, move on.
1: Well, wait, could, could you say that again? You're saying if you already had COVID, there might be an a, an increased risk of, of adverse reaction if you get the vaccine?
0: Well, because the body's already primed. The body's already had the infection. Last thing you want to do is make the body produce spike protein. So yes, two studies from the UK in thousands of people show if you vaccinate on top of previously having COVID, you're asking for trouble. It's, it's a bad move. I, I don't advise it in any of my patients who've had COVID to take the vaccine. No benefit and increased risk.
1: Wow, so that almost sounds like the same spread in terms of uh, risk-benefit analysis as children.
0: Correct, and all vaccines, even, even- all vaccines we apply risk-benefit. Keep in mind the pneumococcal vaccine we give to at-risk people at a certain age, meningococcal vaccine, all the childhood vaccines. We never blanket the entire population from oldest to youngest with a vaccine at the same time in the middle of a pandemic. It's like giving a narrow-spectrum antibiotic to the entire population population. All we're going to do is raise up superbugs. It's a giant mistake to vaccinate the entire population. It should be very strategically and narrowly applied to those at risk.
1: Okay, so that's what I wanted to go next. Um, I wanted you to explain this because I haven't explained it properly to my audience. Um, This point you're making that we've never done a universal vaccination program, particularly while the the virus itself is still percolating uh, pretty virulently in some areas that haven't reached herd immunity. Isn't there? Hasn't there been some observations from the data geographically that there seems to be a correlation of at least a temporary spike in cases where they had robust vaccination?
0: The very short-term increase in cases is always due to the messenger RNA vaccine. So after the first injection... There's increased susceptibility It actually puts you back before you go forward. So in all the studies in Israel and even in the registration studies, uh, patients who get the first injection are at more risk to get COVID in the first two weeks before they get the second injection. The greater concern is what's going on in the island of Seychelles, uh, in the uh, state of Mashtara in India. That's where they had everybody vaccinated. And once you have everybody vaccinated, keep in mind the vaccine is very narrow, and limited immunity. It's like a narrow spectrum antibiotic. It's just, it's giving immunity just to the original Wuhan spike protein, which is long gone. It's all mutated. In the United States, we don't even have any Wuhan spike protein left. So everybody getting vaccinated is getting vaccinated to an older version of COVID-19. Now, hopefully the antibodies are strong enough to hold off some of these mutants, but it's pretty obvious in India, the double mutant and what's going on in some of these islands now, the virus is gonna blow past the vaccine. And so here we've gone taking the risk of the vaccine, we're not getting any benefit, and we're worried about getting more virulent or more dangerous viral strains attacking the population
1: so that's what I was wondering with in terms of the efficacy we've been talking about the potential risks of the vaccine, but but the efficacy so you know, in my mind, the vaccine it makes sense it should work, unlike the masking, which never made sense to me. And, you know, we've been covering here 14 months of data. We've looked at it upside down, inside out. There is zero correlation anywhere with better outcomes and masking. Okay, then we got, went, went on to the vaccine, and I started noticing a similar thing. It almost seems to me, if you look around the world now, and state by state certainly, um, it's a function of herd immunity. If you've reached that level of saturation it doesn't percolate, regardless of your non-pharmaceutical interventions. Certainly, the masking, but also regardless of the vaccination. Um, you know, Iowa and North Dakota—they're in the same geographical region as Minnesota. They have much lower vaccination rates than Minnesota. Minnesota—it was spreading a lot more than than in those two places. Um, and you look look around the world. I mean, England was done with because they were done with. They they had it already. Israel got got crushed with the virus bef- before they. Uh, Started their universal vaccination program, and likewise, you know, and and as opposed to India, which has what 15 percent of the world's population, so there was a lot more churn left. They only had one major wave, not two. There, there needed to be more churn, so they seem to get it. I mean, I can't imagine there's no efficacy at least short term. I think there is, but it's just very hard because in most places the vaccinations occurred after the winter peak had occurred and most places reached de facto herd immunity. So what, what do you, where do you think the efficacy lies in, in these vaccines?
0: When trying to apply efficacy to populations, you have to look at the randomized trials. So in the randomized trials of all the vaccines, over the course of three months, the rate of getting COVID in the vaccinated group and in placebo group was less than 1%. So the vaccines can only have a less than 1% public health impact. So when you're asking, you know, are they making the curves go up and down? They're they're not doing, they're not influencing the curves at at all. They have less than a 1% public health impact. So it's the hardest thing for people to factor. So you're right. The biggest determinants of public health impact are the natural immunity how well we're treating the virus. Remember, if we treat it, we reduce spread, we reduce hospitalizations and deaths. So the countries that are early treating, the United States became an early treating country towards the end of December and January, and those curves fell off a cliff. The reason why we're at a nice plateau right now is we're treating, You know, per day in the United States, we're probably treating the appropriate 25% uh, of the cases per day. There's 45,000 cases a day. We know the telemedicine services are handling 12,000 to 15,000 a day, we're treating the high-risk patients. And that's the reason why the hospitals are relatively empty and we're going on with life. So early treatment saves the day. Vaccines will have less than a 1% public health impact. And we don't know if they're durable at all. We know from the clinical trials, we have about two months of observational data. So I wouldn't, don't forget, vaccines don't treat the disease. Vaccines are playing defense, trying to wear masks and washing hands are playing defense. I've said, listen, let's go on offense. Let's treat the illness. We'll get through it. Early treatment's working. It clearly was the right approach to take. Vaccination is icing on the cake.
1: Exactly, exactly. It, it was never used like this, even when there was more robust efficacy. It's just amazing because I actually started out giving the vaccine the benefit of the doubt. Um, you know, I certainly never supported it for low risk or people that already had it, um, And I was concerned about the effects of it. But I figured, come on, it's got to have some efficacy. But then I'm looking at the same, you know, Ian Miller charts that we keep putting out with the masking. And I'm like, the vaccine seems to look uh, very similar to the masking, where there's zero correlation. I mean, you cannot see any... If you take a geographical region, um, the same way we had masking and non-masking, and there was no difference based on geography and seasonality, we're seeing the same thing with the vaccination rates. You have these Eastern European countries that... Barely um, vaccinated uh, Moldova and Albania, countries like that. And it's it's dead. It's dead like it was because it was very much alive three months ago. So it spread everywhere. And and that's it. And, and in places where they didn't get enough saturation, they're getting it now. They're getting a later spring hit. Um, which brings me to India. I wanted you to talk a little bit about some of the observations. Um, we've been talking a lot about ivermectin and... You know treating it with the proper steroids early on. There were reports a while ago about India or parts of India using ivermectin, and were saying, how look, look how successful it was because they weren't having problems." Then it exploded there. and so what 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 happened there in your mind with early therapeutics?
0: Well, I've been to India several times, so I have some insight. It's not an egalitarian society. Don't forget it's a caste society where there's some people who honestly at the lower caste live on the streets in terrible conditions and other people are incredibly wealthy. It's very unlike the United States. So, of course, early treatment was very consistent in India. And once the virus found the susceptible population, it started blasting, blasting patients with uh, cases. The vaccinated area of Mashtraha really made it worse because of the double mutant strains that came out of it vaccinated population. But what we know now is India has finally gotten the the message and they're getting treatment to all the castes in their society in Goa, for instance, I've been there. Uh, That's a Christian Catholic uh, uh, enclave uh, in the Western part of India There, they're giving out ivermectin to every citizen, so they're using it prophylactically and for treatment, and they're immediately getting the pandemic under control, just like in Mexico City. Mexico City was out of control. We had colleagues down there, 1,200 patients in a hospital at one time. They're having dedicated COVID hospitals. They cleared out the hospitals with ivermectin. Early treatment works, prophylaxis work, and, you know, we just have to keep spreading that message. That's the only way to get out of the the illness. It doesn't. You can't wear a mask or vaccinate yourself out of the illness. Neither one of those are treatments.
1: (laughs) Wow. No, I think that's very profound. You can't vaccinate yourself out of an il- illness. And, you know, like like you said, whether it's mutating, whether it's other viruses, you're always going to need some sort of um, protocol that we should have learned from 14 months of obsessing about this, how to deal with viral rep- replication, how to deal with an inflammatory response um, from other similar viruses and you know these protocols should work you know adjusted a little bit for for other things as well could you speak a little bit about some of what you're seeing since you were on last time i know you've gotten very big you've uh, been on with tucker now so it's certainly an honor you're still coming back here um and you were talking about some of those um you know cocktails and protocols that you've researched a- aside from some of the things we've talked about with ivermectin and obviously the you know robust um uh, prophylaxis that you should always be taking of, of vitamin D, vitamin C, zinc. What are some things that you found works pretty early on, or maybe even later stage?
0: Well, one thing I've learned in general is there's so many different ways to treat this illness. So there's no magic single drug, and using drugs in combination really works. I did a seminar with Dr. Sankarin Chetty down in South Africa, who successfully treated over 4,000 patients. He probably has the best results of any doctors treated white Africans, black Africans, Indian Africans, and ivermectin, and hydroxychloroquine were so controversial down there. He gave up uh, on them. He treated less than 10% mm. of his patients with that. He uses a method where he times the illness. He lets the virus do its run in the first part of the illness. Then around day eight, he starts a combination of inhaled steroids, oral steroids, something called Montelukas in the United States, that's singular. And then he adds in blood thinners. He treats the back end of the illness and he's very, very successful. Uh, there are so many different ways to treat it. There was a recent, um, a very large study using the combination of hydroxychloroquine and a um, mouth spray called uh, Haldine that's available. You can buy that over Amazon and they're using that uh, preventively. And it was very effective. It was about as effective as the vaccine in preventing Uh, developing COVID-19. So there's so many different ways to manage the illness. The only way to blunder is to do nothing. The current strategy of handing somebody a test result, having them go home, giving them no treatment whatsoever, and letting them get sick as a dog and then come into the hospital, that doesn't work. But I can tell you just about anything else, a little blend of an an off-target antiviral, steroids, colchicine, very strong data, antihistamines, and then on the back end, aspirin and blood thinners, it, it, it's a winner. And the doctors and patients just need to get into the habit of treating COVID-19, and we'll get through this.
1: So isn't this largely a doctor problem? You know, the the public I know, I, I speak to anyone, and they're like, what? I mean, forget about culture scene and some of the other things you just said. Um, they never heard of ivermectin. I mean, men on the street, you interview most people, they never heard of it. Um. And uh, you know, unfortunately, that's to be expected. But what's shocking is, and look, I, I sent someone to you that that I knew, and and you know, people are still getting it. It's it's pretty low spread in most places, but people are still getting it. Like you mentioned, it's forty five thousand cases, and most doctors still don't have much for them. I'm finding that they're they're the minority of doctors. They're still kind of drinking out of the same trough of. Hey, maybe maybe monoclonal antibodies, um, and 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 it also if you could just talk a little bit about the the monoclonal antibodies relative to some of the stuff you're um, you've been treating patients with. What what do you, you think some of the pros and cons are?
0: The monoclonal antibodies work great, and that's a simple phone call. I simply call the ER. They have administration rooms. They have them in all cities in the United States. Patients go in at a designated time with a mask and gloves on. They get monoclonal antibody infusion for an hour, and then they go home. That is a great way to start treatment in high-risk patients. You know, they are EUA-approved. They have just as good FDA approval as the vaccines, and the public gets no word of these. You'd think the CDC and the FDA would be on every day saying, listen, sick people, go to your treatment centers and get monoclonal antibodies. And that's one of the reasons why I fried the Texas uh, Senate Department of Health and Human Services. I said, Why don't you tell people where these antibodies are? Why don't you raise a public awareness program? You know, we're getting railroaded into mass vaccination, which is, has very little public health value and tremendous danger, but at the same time, we're not treating sick people, which is so easily treated. And watch, listen, President Trump got this, did Giuliani got this. Why is there absolutely no messaging on treatment? It's, this is what's called malfeasance. Malfeasance is wrongdoing uh, by those in a position of authority. Our public health authorities really have an absolute obligation to tell the public about treatment. And Here we have FDA EUA approved um, therapy, and it's basically being blocked from the public from an informational perspective.
1: See that's a that's a very important and very re- revealing point what you're mentioning because you know a lot of people thought this was about cronyism and making money and it, and it is to a certain extent but I think it's more about power and control because when it comes to the monoclonal antibodies unlike things like ivermectin or hydroxychloroquine it is pretty expensive um, and it is coming from some facet of big pharma yet still they won't promote it and I think because they they do want people to be fearful and dependent on government because the minute people know, look, you know, okay, even if you're older and you get a diagnosis, you start feeling some symptoms, you get a positive test, all right, there's what to do with it. Um, They no longer fear the virus as much. Whereas now, um, you know, most people are like, oh my gosh, I just have to make sure I don't get it. Okay, get the vaccine, get the vaccine. And then, Obviously, the concern is what happens when you have the breakthrough cases, um, and they don't really they don't really want to, as you noted, uh, capture that. Which again is against statute because statute does require a robust surveillance for anything that is experimental. Um, where do you see us headed in the next few months? Your crystal ball. And I know that's a tough thing with this virus. Um, Do do you think, I I I was just going to say, do you think most of the country is near that de facto threshold of herd immunity?
0: Well, I testified actually March 10th based on CDC equations, and this was supported by a public health official a week or two later. I testified March 10th in Texas, one of our biggest states, most populous states. We're already at 80% herd immunity, but people misinterpret what herd immunity is. Herd immunity is not that the problem is over with. It just means that the virus doesn't spread so fast. Herd immunity means you're not gonna have another big hump in the curve. 80% herd immunity uh, means that the virus just can't move from person to person as readily. Now, if 20% of the population got uh, COVID-19, that would be a disaster. So we are at herd immunity. The virus is not spreading so fast and it makes it much more controllable. We're not gonna overflow our hospitals. And we were not at herd immunity when I testified in the Texas Senate on November 19th. And I told people, listen, if we don't start treating patients, we're going to overflow the hospital. Thank goodness. We started treating patients. Those curves rapidly came down. The U.S. responded with early treatment. I think where we're going in the future is I think the safety of the vaccines will be reviewed. And at some point in time, it'll be revealed, even though you can go online and see this. But when people understand Um, That how how the safety hazards of the vaccine, uh, I I think it's going to be, from a policy perspective, I predict it's going to be abandoned. Um, What's happening now is virtually everybody knows, in their circles of connections, they know somebody who's died of the vaccine or been hospitalized or blood clots or serious damage done. Everyone does. These vaccine centers are empty, And there's nobody going to them. They are now uh, offering people a free scholarship and a lottery if they'll get a vaccine, (laughs) a million dollars if they'll get a vaccine, free tickets to ball games if you get a vaccine. You can see the desperation in the vaccine promoters. Listen, people know. Nobody wants to talk about it, but people are knowing. They're saying, listen, this doesn't look good. My aunt died of the vaccine. I had. A patient in the office yesterday who was hospitalized last week for the vaccine, horrible case. And then I had a patient whose father-in-law died uh, a day after the vaccine. Everyone, everyone's being touched by this. The, the safety numbers are astronomical. And so I think you can't encourage them, but the public will get its own sense. They don't need doctors to tell them that it's either safe or unsafe. They, they will know via their um, discussions.
1: Sure. No, I mean, they are that is going to come out. You can't miss it despite them stifling this information. And I think that's a big part of why CDC yesterday really did that about face um, because they realized they were giving people no incentive. Are you concerned that government already knows who had the vaccine? What I'm trying to figure out is everyone's talking about vaccine passport, yay, nay. But to me, it's Inconceivable that they don't already have the ability to track that information.
0: They do. In fact, one of the press releases from New York, which is far enough along on this vaccine passport idea, people said, "Well, what if I lose my card, or what if something happens?" They said, "Don't worry. We know who's been vaccinated or not. When you get <laughs> when you get the vaccine, don't forget you give up all your rights to your information. You give your you give all your identifying numbers. You're given uh, you give away everything, and you're tracked in a database." So I entered a safety event yesterday in the VAERS system, and let me tell you, it took me half an hour. I had to have the patient's uh, vaccine number, the lot number. There was warnings on every page that if I'm falsifying this report, it's a federal (laughs) offense. Okay, so let me tell you, every safety event in there is real. It's been entered by a very concerned doctor or nurse or patient family member, and every single one of these safety events. The total number is 157,277 reports. Every single one of those is legit. And I can tell you, people are concerned that this is the most unsafe vaccine used in history. And um, I don't think you're going to get the public that. I think they've gotten as many people as they possibly can get vaccinated, and everybody else now is starting to back off and say, "You know what?" Th- that safe. is a
1: very serious point you're making because a lot of them try to say, "Well, yeah, people just throw some things in there." But from what you're describing, the numbers in the CDC reporting have to be the floor, not the ceiling. Given how you know harsh it is and how how much they're going to be monitoring that, and I'm sure they're going to go after people. And we've already seen that. Um, a final question: Just want to figure out where we are here. A lot of people are asking me this. They, you know, people that themselves share our concerns, but they have relatives that nonetheless wanted to get it. And they didn't seem to have problems. Is the concern, the scope of the concern of the adverse reactions only short term? And that, look, you've gone your few weeks, maybe even a few months, um, without thrombosis or anything else, or, uh, you know, allergic reactions. Are you out of the woods or are there long-term concerns? My
0: interpretation is I think they're mainly acute short-term concerns. There appear to be three types of Mm. deaths. the the immediate allergic reaction deaths that occur in the vaccination center. That's the reason why they have the resuscitation equipment there. And that's the reason why when the CDC and FDA say none of the deaths are related to the vaccine, nobody believes them because people have, have basically made a video on their iPhone of somebody dying in the vaccine center. There's no way that the government can be trustable when they say none of the deaths related to the vaccine, because some of them happen right there in the vaccine center. That's a small number of individuals. The greatest number of deaths occur on days one, two, three, and four after the vaccine, where they basically die of of a high fever, nausea, vomiting, difficulty breathing, they die in bed. And that is really what we call a reactogenic death. It's just too much production of spike protein. It's like having a super severe case of COVID. And then the, the final types of deaths occur two to four weeks later, and that's what people heard on the news, is the blood clot deaths. Blood clots in the um, heads, blood clots in the abdomen, the legs, massive pulmonary emboli, uh, these types of deaths. But they're, again, they're rare. So the big ones are the reactogenic deaths. And the problem there is they're not predictable. We can't tell from person to person who's going to have an unlucky uh, ride with this vaccine.
1: Wow, a lot of unknown. That is what an emergency use authorization really is. But they're not marketing in that way to the public. Um, okay, I do promise this really is the last question. I just got I got in an email and I wanted to see what's legitimate because we want to make legitimate arguments here. And I don't want to exaggerate anything. So there is this theory going around the internet. People are saying that is there a concern that you could. Transmit to another person if you're vaccinated. The mRNA, the spike protein. Is there a concept of shedding from the vaccine?
0: The manufacturers did have the concern. So the Pfizer protocol, which has been looked at pretty carefully, when there was a man with a pregnant woman, Pfizer and the man got vaccinated and the pregnant woman woman didn't. Pfizer actually wanted to know about the pregnant woman. They actually wanted to know about this shedding or this transfer. Of either the spike protein or some other immune factors, the only thing we have in the vaccine adverse event data system that looks pretty solid is there was a woman who was um, uh, postpartum, she was breastfeeding, she got the vaccine, and likely the spike protein went through the breast milk and the baby drank it, and the baby died of a blood disorder, platelet disorder, several days uh, later, which that never happens in babies. So, I, you know, I would. I would, If I was to guess, I'd say, listen, it's definitely transmitted through body fluids, through breast milk. Um, I think from casual contact from one person to another, probably not.
1: Probably not. Okay. No, so that's that. That's good to know. Um, Dr. McCullough, thanks so much for such a thorough briefing. We really appreciate your work in, in saving lives and actually trying to get to the truth. Please come back di- again and uh, keep up the good work. Thanks for having me. Well, there you have it, folks. That was Dr. Peter McCullough. And during a time of a fire, you have people that run towards the fire like Dr. McCullough to actually treat people, to actually save lives. And then you have people that take from the fire and light it elsewhere, do everything that is the opposite of saving lives. It's unbelievable. Everything that is true of natural immunity, they project upon the, the vaccine in terms of efficacy and everything in terms of danger of people that already had it but weren't vaccinated, they project upon those people. But it really applies to the vaccinations. And, you know, he mentioned one thing I haven't spoken about enough, but there actually is a concern of vaccinating people that had that their, their system is already primed to recognize the spike protein. You don't want to do that. Um, That is not harm-free. This is truly unbelievable. Now, either way, through all the data, masking, vaccination, we have to remember we have a corrupt government. It is now exposed for anyone to see by their own admission, their own capricious flip-flopping from day to day. It's all political. It's all political science. Through it all, we can never forget. We have God-given rights. And regardless of the data, they cannot do this to us. They cannot force a vaccine. They certainly cannot force you to cover your face. It is that simple. And they're still going to do it. You're going to have so-called private businesses still doing it. That is nonsense. Again, we need an all-of-the-above approach with lawsuits, with, I would argue, even the legislatures that are out of session, we need to hijack the sessions, the special sessions coming up to have COVID legislation and flu legislation, that government can never do this to us ever again. None of this. None of this. I'm going to try to write up some sort of uh, draft of a resolution to pass around. But again, this is something we must, must fight with all of our might. Um, It has been quite a long week. I will have a shorter week next week. I'm going to be out at the beginning of the week. We'll have a pre-tape show Monday. I will be out Tuesday. We'll be back Wednesday. So this will give you a little bit of time to catch up on some of the material, catch up on your missed podcast, send to your friends and relatives. Folks, have a terrific spring weekend. Enjoy your vitamin D outdoors. Enjoy your family time. And remember to drop the Chinese face burger.